Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores Pasadena and the things that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome Jason Lyon, an attorney, city commissioner, community leader, and council member elect for my home district, District 7. Born in Kentucky and raised in North Carolina, Jason comes from a family with deep roots in public service, and these influences got him interested in a life dedicated to others, starting with a nonprofit he created when he was just 16, following the death of a friend two years earlier. Wanting to become a documentary filmmaker, he went to UNC at Chapel Hill and then moved to New York, where he was an executive and producer, and the film industry eventually led him to Los Angeles. Unfulfilled working on advertising campaigns and television commercials, Jason got involved with the Neighborhood Council movement in Los Angeles, a system that was created in 1999 to connect LA's diverse communities to City Hall. Realizing that he enjoyed digging through and understanding LA's municipal code, Jason went to law school at UCLA and is now a partner at Han and Han, a passing a legal institution that dates back to 1899. After moving to Pasadena, Jason got involved with local government and has served on our Historic Preservation Commission, Board of Zoning Appeals, and Planning Commission before deciding to run for city council. Jason received the majority of votes in the June primary after a well-run and positive campaign and will take office in December. So, without further delay, my conversation with Councilmember-elect Jason Lyon. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. To get us started, can you share a little bit about your background? As I know, you grew up in North Carolina and that your family had deep roots in the community and a tradition of public service. I did. I was born in Kentucky, actually, and grew up mostly in North Carolina, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Throughout my family, there was a tradition of service. So my grandfather was a deacon in his church for 65 or 70 years. I haven't been on the planet that long. My grandmother was the first woman in her Kentucky county to run for elective office. She didn't get elected, but she ran. My dad was a coach and that kind of stuff very involved in our lives. A mother has done a lot of nonprofit work. And so it just was in my family. And I served on my first nonprofit board when I was 16 years old. And I have done kind of service since then. It's just a thing I enjoy doing. And then moved, went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, moved to New York to become a documentary filmmaker, and then landed in LA in the late 90s. We're going to get in a lot of different aspects of that in a couple minutes. But based on your career and experience with serving your community, you must have had strong influences that have impacted you, how you see the world and your role in it. You mentioned your grandmother and your parents. Who were some of your early mentors that were especially important? And these could be academic, professional, et cetera. Oh, wow. The first one that comes to mind actually is my junior year in high school. English teacher, Mrs. Smith, who was flaky and odd, but introduced me to things that I just, in my sort of southern small town upbringing, had never come across. So we read The Transcendentalists, I remember, and a lot of Native American kind of spiritual writing in my English class. And it totally opened my head to a kind of different way of thinking than I'd ever been introduced to. So part of that board work that I mentioned a minute ago when I was 16 was a friend of mine was killed in a drunk driving accident when I was 14 years old. 
And out of that, we founded a citywide chapter of Students Against Driving Drunk. And the sort of I co-founded that with an adult, and the woman who helped co-found that was really one of the people who taught me about the the pleasure of service and, and also how to really organize your service works. Well, it's funny that you mentioned your high school teacher. I remember my sophomore high school English teacher was also a transformative teacher of mine and introduced me to the same thing. The transcendentalists, Mr. Birdsell, I remember his name to this day because of such an impact he had on kind of how I viewed things. I think that's probably when I diverged from being Catholic was because it opened up my eyes to a lot of different things. It's how I stopped being Southern Baptist is exactly right. I was like, this is so much closer to my natural worldview than than what I was raised in. Yeah. You mentioned that you attended UNC at Chapel Hill and majored in radio, television, motion pictures. What attracted you to the arts and what did you want to do in college? I wanted to direct movies, not documentaries, actually. I wanted to write and direct feature films. In hindsight, the University of North Carolina is probably not the school you go to for that if that's what you want to do, but it was a different time. It was a good school and I went. But that's what I wanted to do. What attracted me to the arts, and this is sort of the through line of all of my career, is that I love storytelling. I love human narratives. So that was my interest, right? I just like telling stories. And I had been like a theater kid as a a kind of actor and when I was a little kid and performer. And then got to New York and was looking for work. And a friend of mine came into a giant trust fund and decided she was going to spend a chunk of it making a film about her family in Texas. Her dad is a sort of -of run-of-the-mill Texas oil millionaire, because there are a lot of them down there, who's been married a bunch of times. And so she came and asked if I would produce and take sound on the movie. And that's how I ended up in documentaries. Well, in 2008, following a career in the creative arts, Hollywood and advertising, You began your journey as an attorney, and you earned your degree from UCLA. What interested you about the law that you decided to make such a big career change? So I made documentaries in New York in the 90s, moved to L.A. in 98, I think, to take a job in television commercials, became a writer of treatments, which are like creative briefs for advertising campaigns and for television commercial directors, and got bored with that, honestly. They're basically like 10 commercials and we just remake them over and over again and I've it started to feel really by rote that work while I was doing that I got involved in the neighborhood council movement in LA so LA has this sort of level of quasi government called neighborhood councils which are designed to facilitate community participation in government and I'm a big believer in participatory democracy so I got involved in that movement ended up on the East Area Planning Commission for the city of LA and found that I really liked digging around in the municipal code for meetings, which is like, a, that's a bad sign when someone says that to you. That's not a dinner guest you want to spend a lot of time with, but turns out I'm fun. And I like digging around in the municipal code. So I took the law school entrance again, the LSAT, just on a lark to see how I do. And I did well. And then I thought I'd just apply to school. I knew I wasn't going to move away. I had a kid. I had a home in LA already and got into UCLA. And that's how I got into law. It was honestly a little bit of a random left turn because I was a little bit bored in life, and it's been the most extraordinary adventure. Well, you and your family moved to Pasadena in 2010. We moved here in 2009. What is it about Pasadena that makes it such a special place to live and a good place to raise a family? 
Oh, there's so much about it. So when we first came here, we started coming to Pasadena. We lived in Silver Lake, but my son was in preschool here in Pasadena. And that just happened because we had friends who went to a preschool and said, you should go to this place. You'd love it. And we did. And then our whole world started to be here. For a while, at some point, I was like, should we move to Pasadena? And we were like, but we're Silver Lake people. I don't know. Pasadena so Pasadena. And then we realized we sort of had aged out of our Silver Lake hipness and we're tired of skinny jeans and fedoras and decided to to make the leap. And I love it here so much. I don't know if you came to any campaign stuff when I was running, but I this was part of my talk every time. I just have, I've lived in a lot of places in my life and I have never been so at home and in love with a place, both the people and the vibe of the place and the, our commitment to our nonprofits and all of that. And just physically, I love seeing the mountains. It is a city with world-class amenities that feels like a very small town. And that combination is, I haven't seen it anywhere else, really. And that's why it's a great place to live. How different is Silver Lake compared to where you live now? I grew up close to Silver Lake in Las Vegas, and I chose to live in Pasadena just because I didn't vibe, like you said, vibe with that area anymore. I think when you hit your 40s or late 30s, (laughs) you really kind of age out. Yeah. Just the traffic and everything else, it just didn't make sense for us. But I grew up in Silver Lake, basically, because one of my best friends was there. And so I I know it's a very unique community, which is very different than Pasadena. I loved Silver Lake. And to be fair to Silver Lake, there is a thriving senior community there. There are a lot of people who've lived there for decades and decades. But it has that kind of edgy urban vibe, too. And at some point, I kind of have have finally claimed my own suburbanness in some way. I love like a sidewalk and a white picket. I literally have a white picket fence at my house and I and a dog and and two kids and I don't know, it's perfect here. Silver Lake is it's a different it's hillier, it's a little harder to walk, I think, and and I wanted a kind of more walkable community, but it's also it was a great place to live. One of my best friends lived on a street and I drove by and his house has been demolished. There's a big hole and they're building condos there. So it's changed a lot yeah. in the last like 20 years. So I'm glad that we both found Pasadena yeah, and we too. both moved here. Um, before running for city council, you served on the Historic Preservation Commission, the Planning Commission, and the Board of Zoning Appeals. Why did you feel like it was important to run for office now? I had thought about it when I was in the neighborhood council phase 20 years ago and just didn't, I don't know, didn't ultimately decided I didn't have the interest or a thick enough skin maybe to run. This time it felt really important at some point during the last five years in our national politics. And in some ways it's the last 25 years of our national politics, but it's become so acute in the last five years or so. We've gotten to this place where we view each other not just as fellow Americans with really different policy views, but we, but as enemies. And I think that's incredibly dangerous and corrosive. I think at some point in this country, we had a notion, I think it was maybe before my life, but I think we had a notion of kind of servant leadership in government where people would step up for a finite period of time to offer their talents to their community and then step aside and let someone else step in. And we replaced that with career politicians who are necessarily thinking always about their own longevity. And that has sort of devolved into this appealing to the most extreme elements of our country. So 
I felt this real calling to step up to serve in leadership, to offer service to my community. And then it was about figuring out what level of government I should be doing. We really need it in Washington, but I'm not moving to Washington. So because I was at the time the vice chair of the planning commission, I felt like I really understood some of the more pressing issues that are facing our city and also how to talk across divides around them. Because even in our local issues, we get really pushed to extremes. I'm for it or I'm against it. And I have had some luck or success in bringing that conversation together and bridging the conversation. So that was how I decided to run and for this office. So we're both residents of District 7, and so I was well aware of the campaign. How difficult was it to run a campaign, a successful campaign, but during the COVID era? It was challenging, for sure. I loved running, I have to say. I had heard how arduous it is, and it is definitely time-consuming. Like, it's every moment there's a thing you need to be doing. But I loved it. I just liked... Once I got into the spirit of it, knocking on strangers' doors and sitting down on someone's porch and talking about what they're thinking about in our community was great. Getting people to answer the door was pretty tricky. I think I knocked on, at some point they gave me the numbers near the end, but it was five or 6,000 doors, I think. Most of the doors in the district and maybe 20% answered the door. Maybe. And some of that is just where we are in society now. And But a lot of that was COVID. And so then it took some figuring out how to... Also how to navigate COVID. I watched people's mask wearing and if they wore a mask, I wore a mask. If they didn't, I didn't. And I kept my distance. It was challenging, but really rewarding. What lessons from your time on the city commissions will guide you on now on the city council? You talked a little bit about bridging divides. I think yeah. that's, a, that's a key one. So I think the tricky balance to strike in Pasadena is that we are a city that is incredibly well planned, really well thought out. We have this incredible architectural heritage that we want to hang on to. And we have that big cities feels like a small town thing that I was talking about. And we want to keep all of that. And we desperately need to house people. And not just at the low income, lower end of the income scale at this point. We're really talking about people who are making at least twice the area median income can't afford to live in Pasadena, according to how we calculate affordability, which is basically a third of your income going to rent or your mortgage. So we have to solve that problem. How do we solve that problem without just building a ton of giant buildings and killing the vibe of this place we love. And I think there are a lot of creative solutions to be had. Adaptive reuse of buildings is one of those. I think if we can convert commercial space or in industrial space or institutional space into housing, you don't change the kind of landscape of the city, but you do add the ability to house more people. So that's probably gonna be the big, I really understand both sides of that conversation. I really care about preservation and about feeling of the city. And I really know that we need to house people. Perfect segue, because we're talking, going to talk about affordable housing and homelessness. What do you think we should be doing to address homelessness from an infrastructure and a city services standpoint? The thing that fascinates me about homelessness in Pasadena is that for the last several homeless counts, more than half of the individuals counted reported that they'd been living in Pasadena in housing for an average of around 20 years. It was a little over 20 years in one count, a little under 20. So that tells us that 
for us in Pasadena, the primary problem is not the more stereotypical notion of individuals who are experiencing mental health crises or drug and alcohol addiction. Certainly those are happening too, but most people in this city are falling into homelessness because they can't afford housing. I think we have a two-prong approach. We need to do everything we can to keep people in housing, and then once they fall out, get them back into housing as soon as possible. The piece that's really missing in that right now is transitional housing. We do okay with getting people into permanent supportive housing. It's the where they go in between the street and the permanent place that's a little bit of a problem. So we look at tiny homes, we look at motel conversion, all those things. And I think we haven't really reached a community consensus about how to do that. And so I want to facilitate that conversation. I think every, all of the transitional options tend to raise a lot of fear and concern. So we need to have a conversation about that fear and concern before we go like announcing that we're going to start building things. And then we go from there. Rent control is on the November ballot here in Pasadena. What are your thoughts on Measure H? And do you think it's an effective way to improve housing affordability? So rent control is such a mixed bag. I endorse the measure. Uh, measure H. Particularly, I endorsed it when they were still doing signatures, particularly thought it was important to get it on the ballot. When people ask me my views about the actual measure, it's complicated. There's a fair amount of data to suggest that rent control over time will actually rise above the market at some point because landlords take the opportunity to take every rent increase and they might not do that if there weren't rent stabilization. But for me, at this moment in time in Pasadena, I think the thing we need more than anything else is stability and predictability. And for that, it's worthwhile to me. There are all kinds of things that are complicated about it, I think. I would have preferred probably that it was, was an ordinance rather than a charter amendment, just because a charter amendment is harder to tweak if we need to tweak it. But we'll figure that out. We can get stuff back on the ballot if we have to. And the authors of this particular amendment made a real effort to address one of the, one of the really weak parts of rent control which is not driving mom and pop landlords under. So it has a mechanism in place to allow for a rent increase if it's necessary for the individual property. And I think it's a mechanism that will work. It requires a lot of infrastructure to create that mechanism. It's not cheap, but right now it feels like a measure that could introduce very needed stability in the housing market. And I don't know what the voters are going to do. I'll be interested to see. It seems like there's support for it. It is a very complicated issue. And I have a question for you. It's a follow-up question because you obviously know how it's written. My grandparents had a fourplex that they built in Montebello years and years ago. And I was thinking about like kind of the, what the units that we're looking for here in Pasadena is the missing middle, right? It's yeah. the duplexes to, to small townhomes that we're really, we really need desperately in the city. Would a duplex or a fourplex fall under the mom and pop? Uh, exemption? Well, there's not really an exemption. It's just that you can go any unit that is subject to rent control under the Pasadena proposed charter amendment can go before the rent stabilization board and seek a modification of the rent. In theory, a big corporate property owner could do it for a particular property if they needed to. It's more likely to be kind of individual property owners who have an extra unit, a duplex, a fourplex, who go in to, to get it modified. I appreciate the clarification. People heard criticism during the primary campaign that the planning commission was quote unquote malfunctioning because it was pushing overdevelopment. Mm -hmm. And you're smiling as I say this question. How can we balance the need for more housing and additional investment in Pasadena while maintaining its character? And I'm, I'm coming from a real estate background, so I, I like development, yeah. but I also own a detached single family home like mm -hmm. you do. So it's kind of this mix. 
So how do we kind of balance that? Still can't resist the opportunity to respond to that criticism because I thought it, it, it was not my favorite of the campaign moments, I have to say, because I think it's sort of observably not true of this planning commission. If anything, this planning commission is a little bit is a little bit anti-development, if I had to say where the bent is right now, although pretty balanced. But it the key is there are a lot of things. So more than anything in Pasadena, quality architecture is the first thing. If we like how it looks and it's going to add to the architectural heritage of this city, it's generally going to be good for property values, good for communities, and we're going to like having it added. People get really worried about density. And density is a complicated thing. There are very dense cities that are very walkable and feel very ground scale. One of my fellow commissioners brings up Paris almost every meeting to every time we meet because it's an incredibly dense city, but not a particularly built up city and very walkable. So you can have all of that. You are likely to have more traffic with density. So that's why we look at pushing density toward the transit corridors near public transit, near the busier streets and along those streets, which are also the streets that where a taller building feels more appropriate. We could do that on, on a Royal Parkway on Colorado. Del Mar can take some of that. Again, more than anything, it sort of is about the design of the place. And that's where we, we have a very careful design process in the city. A little bit, it can be a little bit onerous on the development side, but it results typically in buildings that we're happy to live with. Well, we're in a conference room right now. We're on the ninth floor and I'm overlooking the city looking east. And I wouldn't consider a nine-story building being a very tall building. But we're on the higher end in Pasadena, so we don't have that many tall buildings. So the the density is kind of an interesting question here. Right. And probably that part of the balance, right? Like we try, we're going to need to to get as many people as we can into into a smaller space if we don't want height. And at some point we have to figure out where that trade-off is. And it's different in different spots, obviously, in the city. I compare Pasadena to Glendale. I mean, it seemed like Glendale went on a tear about 10, 15 years ago where like everything was developed, drive down corridors and it's just apartments after condos, after apartments, after condos. I mean, it's, and there's no reasoning to it seemingly there's no kind of aesthetic that they followed and i think past like you said design is so important to the city that it's it's embedded in every development project whether people like it or not and sometimes design is a subjective thing right sometimes we land on things that not everyone loves sometimes we land on things that everyone hates but occasionally we hit one that everybody thinks is a gem and so that's the goal so you stated that you want Pasadena to be a a walkable place for people to live and that Pasadena should be a leader in sustainability. How can we prioritize environmental stewardship on a local level when this issue is so much larger than Pasadena as a whole? I never really buy into the whole thing of like, well, the whole, this is a worldwide problem because every bit of change in the world start at the very individual level, right? Like really all I can control is my own behavior. So I'm going to worry about what I do and hope that other people worry about what they do and it works out. Right. And that principle applies at scale. So I think there's a lot our city can do. There are huge regional issues, obviously. Water is a big concern, but that's a concern throughout the Western United States. So as a city, that doesn't mean we, we can completely wash our hands of the water issue, pardon the pun, but we could be lobbying more effectively for long-term solutions. So we can af- affect the bigger conversation. But right here at home, there are I think there there's a quite a bit of low-hanging fruit that we could take on pretty quickly. We have some substantial heat islands in the city, just planting trees, which are very aesthetically pleasing anyway, but planting trees, if they're native and drought tolerant, they're going to be established pretty quickly and they start to bring the temperature down. Naturally, they help clean the air. So that's a quick one. Changing our food recycling program. First, I'm 
so excited that we have one and glad the state finally made everyone do it. Ours goes, there are a lot of driven legs to get our food waste to where it ends up to become slurry. So I think there are three or four different trips that has to go on to get there. So if we could move that a little closer to home or look at composting or regional composting centers, I would love that. Because food waste is a big generator of greenhouse gases. And then there are just a handful of things like that, that I think we, we need to get to really incentivizing conservation, lawn conversion, gray water conversion, all those things. And we do half-hearted, not half-hearted, I'm sure they're fully sincere on the city side, but we do conservation incentives, but they don't get picked up because people, not enough people know about them or understand how they work. And then we sunset the program because no one was using it. And so I think we have to bridge that divide and make sure people know about it and why they want to do it. After launching this podcast in October of 2020, I knew I needed a tool to record the show that would be easy for both myself and my guests. I also wanted a tool that had great audio quality. So I'm excited that the podcasting tool I've used since the early days of the show, Zencaster, is a sponsor. Not only does Zencaster provide studio quality sound, but it also features awesome HD video recordings if you want to upload shows to YouTube or someplace else. What I love most about Zencaster is that I record separate audio and video tracks, so the editing process is much more customized. Plus, there's secured cloud backups so you never lose your interviews, post-production is a simple click away, and a transcript is even auto-generated. It's super easy to use. There's nothing to download. My guest just click on a link and we start recording. Go to Zencaster.com pricing and enter promo code the Crown City Pod to get 30% off your first three months with a pro account. You will also get a 14-day free trial. Zencaster is the modern web-based solution for the everyday and professional podcaster, and I'm proud to have them as a sponsor. Now back to the show. One question I ask small business owners is whether we do enough as a city to encourage people, especially women and people of color, to start or grow their own business here. And the answer has largely been no. You've shared that we need to create the right conditions for growth. Looking at such an uncertain time that we live in economically, what are the right conditions that you think would make Pasadena succeed? So what comes to mind right now is figuring out retail, really. We've seen this huge cultural shift in the age of the internet and particularly of Amazon in how we shop. And so we have all of these. It's really hard to have a locally owned business like that that works. So I would love to see us. I think the first thing is to create concentrated retail centers. It used to be that we just built mixed use everywhere. There's some use above and then ground floor retail, but we don't need that much retail anymore. And so we need to try to put it in places where people will walk to retail. And in our district, that's going to be Colorado and South Lake probably. And we want to really focus on making those work and doing everything we can to undergird that. In terms of other businesses in the city, non-retail, we have an economic development office. It has 
tended historically, at least this is my perception, and I'm not really an expert on this, so, but it has tended historically to focus on bringing in large businesses from outside. Certainly bringing in the tech sector has been a big focus in the last few years, which could be great for the city. But I would love to see that department really focus on local business. And as you said, women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses. I'm proud to say that the law firm you're sitting in is 123 years old and is a certified women and minority-owned business today. And through a lot of very intentional action and movement, we went from being a bunch of old white guys to a few old white guys now. It is possible, but it takes a fair amount of support. District 7 is kind of interesting because it has two real commercial corridors. Do we bump up to the Playhouse District? I mean, it's, it's, so it's three districts. So it's Playhouse District, South Lake, and then Colorado. And kind of our portion of Colorado seems kind of unorganized. Yeah. Which is kind of a problem. Once you hit, I don't want to say Fair Oaks, but once you hit Lake and east of that, it's just, there's no kind of rhyme or reason. And then if you walk down Lake, there's so many businesses that were legacy businesses that are no longer there. Yeah. It's so sad to see, you know, like Arnold's Jewelry Store, which is there for like 100 years, yeah. you know, went under during COVID. And like a lot of other places that just can't support the rent. Do you have any thoughts on how to kind of revitalize some of these areas? Put on my planning nerd hat was the first place that I went. Uh, along Colorado, the all of Colorado is covered by a series of specific plans that are lot by lot plans for an area to give it a feeling and to give it an economic sensibility and a human sensibility and to make it work as a cohesive thing. So there's Old Town, there's the Paseo piece, there's the Playhouse Village. You The next one over is the East Colorado specific specific plan. I skipped the whole central district specific plan, which is huge and important. Playhouse Village is like a little piece of that. That particular piece that it, that you talked about, east of Lake, there is a plan for it. It will take a while for it to come in. But the idea is for that to feel like a, another little neighborhood village in the way that Playhouse Village feels. And in the way that if you just east of Hill and just east of PCC, w- we have created a little bit of a different kind of village there. It's much more kind of college student oriented. So it's more more fast food, it's more chains, it's more that stuff. But there is a there's a vibe there. There's a feeling in that little piece. And we're missing that piece right there just east of Lake, but we're working on it. And there is I like how it's conceived in the Central District plan. Uh, one issue that you've talked about is kind of creating a unified city. How do you think that we can get people engaged with neighborhoods that really aren't our own? So this is hugely important to me. The idea of the two Pasadenas is persists. And there is a a vast economic divide in this city. We see it play out in a lot of ways. We see it play out in, in many ways in the public school versus private school debate at this point. I think the last time I heard, and it's been a couple of years now, this is when I was uh, working with Young and Healthy, but I think something like two-thirds of kids in, in PUSD qualify for a free or reduced price lunch. And the last I heard, fully a third qualify as living below the poverty line. And so those economic conditions are by and large not something we talk about in District 7 a lot. District 7 does have some pockets of kind of economic depression, little kind of sub-neighborhoods that I'd learned more about while I was out walking for this campaign. But by and large, it's not where our where our district focuses. So I would love to just raise awareness of that issue. To raise awareness of the, on the Planning Commission, we see the lingering effects of this city's history of redlining and racial segregation. We can, you, you can still see the red line in the city in terms of economic conditions on one side versus the other. I just would like to bring awareness to that and to begin to, and I, and I 
I tried some in my campaign. I will say it was not the primary theme of what people were interested in talking about in District 7, but but trying to get us to understand that you know, the city is a is like an organism, right? And so if one part is not healthy, the whole system's not healthy. And so for all of us to move forward, all of us have to move forward. And we have to look at who we're leaving behind economically. I love this idea. Our district is kind of on the south end of Pasadena. And sometimes it's you forget that there's a north Pasadena unless you drive through it. It's really important that we view ourselves not as, oh, I live in District 7, I live in whatever village area, that you're from Pasadena and this is your home. And my home is is in South Pasadena, but it's also in Northeast Pasadena. It's in Northwest Pasadena. The whole city is our home, not just like our little, our block. We're very focused on like our block and not viewing ourselves as a part of the whole. And I think we need to kind of adjust our kind of perceptions. Ideally, I'd love to have both, right? I do love that people love their neighborhoods and their streets and we have block parties. There's this amazing block party in your neighborhood, not far from you, the whole camp camp beer thing. Beer camp, I think it is. Anyway, I'll tell you about it when they're doing it. But it, uh, so I love that sense of, we have a real sense of neighborhoods here, which I love, but we don't always have a great sense of citywide issues. Well, I love this question. I asked this question to council member Jess Rivas. Former White House official and political advisor David Axelrod said that the greatest threat to our, to our democracy is cynicism and the belief that we can't make a difference. How do you think we can push back on this and show people that the government can actually work for them? Before I answer, I think I'm distracted by the fact that I think that's such an Obama era perspective, because I now think the greatest threat to our democracy is misinformation and disinformation. I suspect he would say something different now. But cynicism is is still a threat, right? People's belief that the system is fixed, that it's game for the powerful, that their voice doesn't matter. And so the question was how to fix it. I think it's a hard fix. I think it is servant leadership. It really is people stepping up with an idea not of amassing power or building a career, but trying to serve the needs of their community in politics and government. It's transparency is a huge part of it. Taking the time needed to illuminate why and how a decision was made or not made is hard to do because it's time consuming. But I think in general, more sincerity, more authenticity and more humanity in government is our only hope, really talking about kind of transparency and then the kind of dedication of public servants. You know, I kind of grew up in the Los Feliz area. And for many years, uh, Tom LaBonge was our city yeah. council member. He was your city council member, I assume, in Silver Lake as well. I was actually in, in Garcetti's, but he, but he, Tom covered both. They were, okay. they were both in Silver Lake. Tom was a very well-respected city council member. And it seemed like he had no aspirations other than to serve his council district. And for that, he was a really good example. I'm sure Tom wasn't perfect, but... I love that sense of like, this is my goal, this is my mission, and this is what I'm going to dedicate the next part of my life to, Yeah, not focus on the next step. So I think more politicians with that mindset, I think, would be yes. helpful and healthy. Our system is not really designed for that. It really is designed for people who want to immerse themselves in a career in politics, in part because money is such a huge factor. But Tom is a perfect example because he was such an amazing cheerleader for the city of LA and for his district and just earnest and enthusiastic about the city. And I think there's huge value in that, just bringing a kind of unbridled enthusiasm to the process. 
I don't have any interest in being a career politician. If I love it, who knows? I might say to you and to you, yeah, I'm running for the next thing. But I, I think career politicians are a problem. So I would have to get over that divide in my head and, fi- and figure out how I was addressing that to run for another office. With everything that's going on in our country, it feels like a very dangerous time politically. I think you kind of mentioned that earlier. Yeah. How do we make passing a place of progress and equality while ensuring that it provides public services worthy of such a city of ours. And, you know, I'm in my 40s. I've studied politics. I studied political science. I worked in kind of lobbying in D.C. for a number of years. And this is the, feels like by far the most dangerous time that I've lived yeah. through politically. I mean, how do we tone down or work our way through this kind of like wave that we're kind of encountering in terms of the negativity and the, you said like the, the misinformation and yeah. kind of stuff like that? What are your thoughts? We need people in in elected office. We're not pandering to the extremes. And that doesn't mean they don't, uh, you, you can't have a point of view as a politician. And your point of view might be extreme. That's even okay. You have to be willing to have an exchange of ideas with people. And we're in this place where people just, if your ideas are different than mine, I'm not listening to them. And that's dangerous. And so far, locally, we haven't succumbed to that. I think we, we do an okay with having the conversation. And okay, job of having the conversation. We need to make sure that everyone has a place at the table and is has a meaningful voice. And that's easier said than done. That we continue to try to diversify representation, that we have new and different voices on the council. I'm proud to be the first openly LGBT elected official in the city of Pasadena. And I think that matters. I Mostly, it's not going to change my perspective on a lot of things. I'm still like a businessman and a homeowner and all those things. I'm that. But I also have experienced parts of life as a person on the margins. And so it gives me a different kind of empathy and and perspective. And we need to keep inviting new and different voices into the conversation. Well, fast forward several years. What would make your time on the city council a success? That I didn't get voted out of office would be one measure. Not recalled would be a good one. I think in a very broad sense, that I made the city a better place, that I could appoint to a few things I got done. I think there are some specific things I would like to get done. It sounds boring if you're outside but of the planning world, but we need to create a comprehensive adaptive reuse ordinance. We need to create a mechanism for doing it, because otherwise no one's just going to turn their building into housing. If we can get that done and start to see some housing built that people are okay with. That would be a huge achievement. Well, you're a distinguished attorney with a long history of public service, and you're also a husband and a father. And I call this question the Jess Rivas question because I asked her how she did it all. I loved this moment in the the interview, by the way. And her response, if people are going to go back and listen to it, was, I hope you asked that of a male counterpart. And I said, well, I haven't had the opportunity, but I will. So this is my Jess Rivas question. I knew I was getting this question when I listened to that interview, actually. Uh, Yeah. So how do you do it all? Because anyone that does has not been on the planning commission doesn't really know how how much work it is. But it is a part time job. The city council is a part time job in addition to your full time job. And you're also a husband and a father of two kids. So how do you balance it all? How do you make it all work? I'm figuring it out. I let me be really candid about that. I'm still piecing it together. Really, we say the city council's a part-time job, but it is, at least all the council members tell me, a full-time job in and of itself. So that means I'm going to have two full-time jobs. I am married to, my husband is a realtor and was just ordained a priest. So, and he is a working priest, and I hope he stays a realtor because it's a good income stream. So we're up four 
job family at this point, and we'd like to see our children occasionally. So how that works is, a honestly, it's a lot of careful calendaring, <laughs> I have to say, and not a lot of downtime. So far, we made it work. I'm getting my job done in the daytime. I'm getting constituent work done. I'm seeing my kids. I'm showing up at games. I see my husband <laughs> less than I might like. The, I think the harder part is going to be checking with me in a couple of years to see if I have done a very good job of taking care of myself. So, you know, that I'm doing, that I get any downtime, because that's the one piece I haven't quite worked in yet, but I'm working on it. I'm paying attention to it. So kind of winding down our conversation, the last couple of questions, when you think about the next five years, the next 10 and beyond, what do you envision for passing this future and what role do you see yourself playing in it? I think the big things that we're going to be talking about are our housing, water, the Rose Bowl, and the 710. In housing, I would like to see us create as many mechanisms as we can for the implementation of housing, not necessarily the construction of new housing, but the addition of housing without changing the feeling of the city. I think so much of the state law is not suited to Pasadena, so we got to figure out our own version of how to get housing. On water, it's some combination of advocating for changes, whether that's lawns, watering at Brookside, incorporating as much gray water as we can. On what was my third thing? The Rose Bowl, I have no idea what my role is going to be yet. I, I'm concerned about it, but I think we haven't, we got to get creative about what we're doing to generate revenue there and, and how we let that jewel of the city survive without weighing us down financially. And then the 710, I think is the most exciting prospect. What an incredible time to get to be in city government here, because we're really going to reconceive this whole piece of the city. I hope there's an equity piece that addresses the homes that were taken away. I hope there is some, an open space piece over there. Um, my personal preference is that part of that goes into housing because we need it. But more than anything, I think my role in that is going to be facilitating a robust public dialogue about what we do with the 710 because I don't think we move forward on that until we have some version of community consensus about what we're doing with that. My office is across the street from the stub. I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetimes fully, but um, (laughs) maybe our children will. And that's, that's exciting. I hope so. I hope so. So as a fellow parent, what are the most important values that you want to instill in your children through your example? I hope that I'm teaching my kids that their job is to try to make other people's lives better as much as they can and to enjoy their own along the way. That doesn't mean they're not having fun. And in fact, I hope they are because I levity, I think, is hugely important and enjoying life is important. But I hope that they have a sense of a calling to service and to kindness. Oh, District 7 is an interesting mix of residential, commercial, and educational areas. We have South Lake, we have the Playhouse District, Colorado Boulevard, Madison Heights, Oak Knoll, San Pasqual, et cetera, et cetera, and both PCC and Caltech. Yeah. If you could design a perfect day in District 7, and I'll, I'll restrict this to District 7 because you're now a city council member for District 7. If you could design a perfect day in District 7 from breakfast to late night, what would you do? Where would you go? And what would you eat and drink? This, I wish I'd prepared for this one. This is hard. It's I, funny because I give questions to every guest. And this question, everyone forgets about it. So this one I knew was coming and didn't pay attention. I could have prepared this one. Okay, breakfast is probably going to be... Oh, so here's the hard part. At some point, we got to hit a pie and burger. And we have both El Portal and Amigos in the, in the district for Mexican food. Both of those would be on my list. So that's more meals than we need in a day, really. I probably... I'll, I'll do breakfast to pie and burger, even though... Because I got a great breakfast, even though I'd be sad to miss the burger. I'll do lunch at Amigos and dinner at El Portal because I like it outside on the patio. We'll see a play at the Playhouse, and then we'll do a lovely neighborhood walking tour in the afternoon from Madison Heights all the way through Caltech and PC.
CCC over to your neighborhood and around. That's a long day. Maybe I'll join you for it. Okay. Um, so now that you've been elected and you take office officially next month, is that correct? Uh, December 12th. December 12th. How can we best support you and your work to improve our district and Pasadena? Great question. Communicate about your point of view, about things before the city. And ideally, certainly about development, but more than development. There's a whole lot of other stuff the city council does. This is the thing I say to community groups all the time and to neighborhood groups is don't fall into the trap of just communicating when you don't like something. Don't don't always vote no. It is equally or more important to hear, we love this, do this. And give me some room to learn the job because I <laughs> it's going to take me a year or two to figure out what I'm doing is what I hear. Jason, thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena, for your leadership in the community, and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. It was really fun. My many thanks to Jason for coming on the show. In the last three years, the City Council has welcomed four new members. Council members Williams, Rivas, Jones, and Lyon make up a new group of community leaders, and I'm excited for the future of our city because of their knowledge and passion. Jason's last piece of advice was a great one. Instead of just raising your voice in opposition or complaining, use it to praise something or share something positive. We are trapped in a cycle of negative politics and policy. We need to break it as positive ideas move us forward. October marks the two-year anniversary of this podcast. The trailer was released on October 1st, 2020, and my first interview episode with then-Mayor Terry Tornick debuted on October 21st. It's been a wild ride, and thank you for every moment of it. There are so many people that help keep the show going. First, I wanted to thank my Patreon sponsors, Jess and Albert. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my family for all their love to keep this project alive. And finally, to all that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. This is the only podcast that has never been supported by a mattress company, Athletic Greens, or a meal kit. I love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com, and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, visit Pie and Burger for breakfast, and as always, see you around town. Jason comes from a family with deep roots. Deep roots. Deep roots, roots, <laughs> roots, 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 roots. I use that for my outtake.